1: morning to all the dads out there. Uh, So, we're about to dive into probably one of the most difficult texts in all of the New Testament. Happy Father's Day. Um, Before we do though, I need to ask a question. What are you afraid of? (laughs) Heights? Any heights, folks? Oh my goodness, like to this day, I'm scared to death of heights. Spiders? Uh Uh-huh. Mice? Uh Uh-huh. Snakes? Any snakes out there? Uh, What about uh, clowns? Oh my goodness, like poor Bozo the Clown. Like I used to love watching Bozo growing up and now like people are scared to death of swimming when you can't see the bottom. (laughs) Oh yeah. Uh Uh-huh, my son. Uh, scared to death to swim in the river because you can't see the bottom. You're so scared of it. Uh, wild animals, dentists. Uh huh. Are there any dentists in the room? I'm just, I just I want to apologize if there was, but all right. But I mean, when you start hearing that like that, like, uh uh-uh, no, like, I'm done. I'm done. So when I was in the eighth grade, at Longfellow Middle School in Flint, Michigan, we went on our eighth grade trip, graduation trip, that is, to Cedar Point, okay? Now, I told you already, I'm scared to death of heights. And I can remember going uh, to Cedar Point, getting off the bus, and on the way there, I'm thinking the whole time, like, what am I going to do? I don't want to ride on no roller coasters. I'm too afraid to get on a roller coaster because I'm too afraid of the heights and the feeling that you get where I feel like I'm going to die, Okay? And so I, I, uh, I wound up connecting with a, a buddy of mine, his name was James, and James and I had gone to school in seventh and eighth grade together. We were friends, I wouldn't say that we were like really close friends, but that day, James and I were close friends, because James was scared to death of roller coasters as well. And so literally, the whole day, we walked around Cedar Point. Going to little uh, shows that were happening or just walking around pretending that we were in line, not seeing the rest of our friends. In fact, I think I saw Jordan to the max like three times that day. All right, just because we were trying to... Finally, at the end of the day, we decided together that we were going to ride a ride. And so, 1976, Cedar Point added a roller coaster called the Corkscrew. Probably seen a picture of it like that, Okay. Now, this was 1987, so this would have been like 11 years, this was not like a new coaster, this was not the biggest, it was not the baddest, but it was very scary for James and I. We got in line, we walked up, finally got to the front, strapped ourselves in, talking ourselves into actually staying in there and not just like walking, you ever see those folks that like wait in line? and then it's time for them to get in, and they, like, walk just straight through and <laughs> walk back out. Like, that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't. We went on the coaster, freaking out the whole time, like, scared to death, like, I'm going to die. We get to the end, and I'm like, look at James. He looks at me, and we're like, yeah, like, like in your, you know, most deepest, you know, eighth grade voice. Yeah, like, it was amazing, and, and we were so excited because we had done it. And now we're like, we could do anything. That wasn't that bad. We could do it. Like, we wanted to go ride a bunch of roller coasters. The problem was it was 4 o'clock, and we had to be at the bus at 4.15. There are some things in life that I'm afraid of that I probably shouldn't be. Right? There's other things in life that I'm not very afraid of that I probably should be. So uh, we used to live out in Hamilton. Okay? I just met. Some Hamilton folks, yeah. So we used to live out in Hamilton, and uh, we had a, whole, a bunch of land. We had like 10 acres, and so a lot of it was woods, and we would find all kinds of interesting wildlife, all right? Uh, the most fun for my kids was snakes. And so uh, we found, I was actually one of the first snakes that I ever saw when I was there, because I've seen garter snakes, I had held garter snakes when I was a kid, but there's a snake called the eastern hognose snake, okay? Now, I did not know anything about this snake, I'd never seen one before, but they have kind of like diamond-shaped kind of patterns on their back, and if you corner one, they will actually hood up like a cobra. They coil up, and then they hood up like this. I'm not even kidding. The first time I saw one, I thought for sure, like, somebody had accidentally released a pet cobra into the wild, and I'm thinking, like, who has a pet cobra anyway, and why are they releasing it into the wild, and why is it at my house about to kill me? Uh, So I wound up learning, okay, no, this is just a hog, no snake, and they're, like, totally harmless. In fact, if you actually go to grab it, it will roll over on its back, pee itself, open up its mouth, and stick its tongue out, and lay there pretending to be dead for, like, a minute or two, okay? That, like... This is not like a fearsome snake, okay? It just looks like it at first. So uh, I learned that you could grab, oh, we've got pictures. Okay, perfect. So that's what uh, the hognose snake looks like, all right? There's a little garter snake. My sister's on the left and my son Max holding one and Kai's holding uh, one of the bigger ones that we had found. They look pretty, like, gnarly, right? Well, my kids had gotten used to holding snakes. Like, that was just not a big deal. They find a snake, they grab that thing, it become like their little pet, okay? we put. It so one day, I'm out mowing the lawn, and I see about a three-and-a-half-foot-long black racer, all right? Now... Again, black racers, I know that there's no poisonous snakes in Michigan except for the Mississauga Rattler, and those are really, really rare. You almost never find them, and I've never seen one. So I know about that one, and I know nothing else can really hurt you, okay? So I've got on gloves, leather gloves, because I'm out mowing one. and I'm still kind of scared of snakes. So uh, I saw this black racer, though, and it started, because they're fast. And I started to go after it, and it climbed up into a tree. So that's what they do to try to get away. They actually climb into a tree, so then I like, grabbed him by his tail and started pulling him out. And uh, he kind of turned on me a little bit, uh, but I grabbed him by the head and brought him back. And like, I put him in, the, in our little, like, aquarium that we have where we keep stuff like that. And I went and told the kids. Max, who's used to just, like, picking up snakes and playing with them all the time, Max comes running in there, okay? He just flips open the top and goes in and grabs the snake and pulls it out because that's just what he's used to doing, but a black racer is not like an Eastern hog nose. They are not afraid to bite you, okay? And they will. And so he grabbed it, pulled that thing out, and that thing went, wah, wah, and like bit him right on the head. Like, and it hurts. Like, they have sharp little teeth. And he bit him, and Max, was like, ah, freaking out. And he's shaking it, and the thing's not letting go, and finally it lets go. And Max has like this ring of blood coming out because he got bit. You see, there's some things in life that I'm probably not that afraid of that maybe I should be a little bit more afraid of. Some things I'm afraid of that I really don't need to be, and other things I probably ought to be more afraid of. This moves us into our text this morning. We're actually going to look at two stories in Acts chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to Acts chapter 5. We're going to start with what I think is probably one of the most difficult stories in all of Scripture. And to be honest, I've really struggled with teaching this one. There's a piece of me that kind of wishes that we had decided when Jordan and I were planning the sermon series to skip this one. A lot of people do, to be honest. There's a lot in Acts. We can't cover all of it anyway. So we're picking and choosing what we can cover. And I kind of wished, as I was preparing, that we just kind of bounced over this because it's hard. And I think you'll understand really quickly once we jump into it. Acts chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, you're going to start in verse 1. I'm actually going to start in verse 36 because it just gives us a little bit of context. So verse 36 says this, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. We talked about this last week, okay? Now this moves us into the story of Ananias and Sapphira, verse 1, chapter 5. says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, He fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So here we have a couple who have means, They would have been quite wealthy to have owned uh, a plot of land, and they decide they want to be like Barnabas. Barnabas had just sold a plot of land. He was also uh, a person of means. He sells that land, and he brings the money, all of the money, for the sale of that land, and he places it at the apostles' feet. He basically gives it to the church. Do with it what you need, is what he says. Ananias and Sapphira hear uh, about what he has done, and also kind of the accolades that he's received. And they think to themselves, we want that as well, and so they take their plot of land and they sell it. Now, in the text, it says, verse two, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money. Okay. Now, that word "kept back" there has the idea that he uh, had uh, was lying or stealing or misappropriating. The funds. Now, we don't know exactly whether or not he had already had a conversation with the elders of the church, maybe with Peter, and said, hey, I'm going to sell this land and I'm going to give all the money to you. Or if it just simply means that he wanted everybody to know that he had sold this land and was giving all the money. He wanted them to think something about him and his wife. That was not true. So the word kept back there is connected to a story that we find in Joshua chapter 7. This is another time, a very important time in the life of Israel, when Israel has, after being in bondage for 400 years in Egypt, been freed, okay, remember Moses comes and the plagues happen, and Pharaoh says, fine, leave, and they finally uh, leave, and then they wander through the wilderness for 40 years because they're disobedient to God, they have a hard time wanting to trust God, even though God's done all these amazing things, finally, Uh, after Moses sees the promised land, before he enters, though, Moses dies and Joshua takes over. And God says, all right, you're going into the land that I've promised you now. Okay, there's people that were already inhabiting the land that they were going to have to deal with. And so Jericho was one of those places. Jericho thought that their place was impenetrable, had these huge walls. God says, I don't want you to go and fight them. I just want you to walk around. And so they walk around the city for seven days, and on the seventh day they walk around it seven times, and the walls collapse, and God gives that city to Israel. Now God had said to the people, uh, the gold and the silver you can put in the treasury, but do not take any of the devoted things. Devoted things would have been uh, um, idols that they would have worshipped, stuff that would have been used in uh, um, worshipping false gods. So they're not supposed to touch any of that stuff but there's a guy named Achan who he and his family find some of these devoted things when they're going through the city and they take them and they hide them in their tent. And uh, the next time that Israel goes out uh, to have to wage war against another people who do not want them there uh, Israel gets destroyed. They get routed. And they're like, Joshua's like, God what's going on? Why why is this happening? And, And God says, because someone in the camp, someone in Israel has done what I told them not to do. So they go all around, they finally find out that it's Achan and his family have been hiding these things, and Achan and his family are killed. Very, very difficult story to deal with again. Uh, If you are like someone who's just checking out church, maybe a friend invited you, maybe uh, someone had mentioned it and you showed up today. Uh, uh, maybe you kind of used to go to church, and but you kind of got like really sick and tired of church. Um, I just want to say to you, first of all, that we're really glad that you're here. Now, we believe that uh, what God's word has to say to us uh, actually has meaning and power and actually brings a beautiful life. Uh, but today we're actually looking at what I think is a really, really tough thing. So if you're not a Christian, you're probably thinking, whoa, this is some crazy stuff. If you are a Christian, you're probably still thinking, whoa, this is some crazy stuff, okay? Because we have here a couple who basically tries to deceive the church and they wound up being judged by God and dying. Basically, God kills them. you're like, man, that's harsh. I mean, like, that's really, really harsh. Now there's a few things that we know from the story. Number one, uh, the land was, and we'll get back to the Achan piece in a a minute, but the land for Ananias inspired, it was theirs. We see this in in verse 4. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? In other words, like, it was yours. You didn't have to sell it. It was yours. You could have done with it whatever you wanted to. And then he says, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, you didn't have to give all. You could have kept some back, no big deal at all. The issue was when You try to come and pretend to be something that you're not. When you're trying to win the accolades and and the love and the respect of of, of the church and you try to lie to not only us but to God. Like, you can't lie to God. God knows everything. And God makes an example out of them. Seems harsh. Seems tough. So why this story? Because, I mean, up till now, Luke's been telling us like a pretty glowing story about the church, Right? Like, we know that not everything's perfect, but he's telling us, like, the highlights, to, like, look what it can be like. And then, this is one of the ways that you can tell that uh, the stories that Luke tells are actually true because Luke actually puts in the nasty stuff, too. Quite honestly, if I was writing this and I just wanted to, like, make stuff up, like, I wouldn't tell you a story like this. I wouldn't want you to know about this. This is difficult. This is hard to understand. This is like, man, God, what's up? Why are you doing this? Well, Dr. Ajith Fernando uh, wrote a commentary that I've been using to study. There's actually a number of different uh, wonderful ones, Um, but he, he said this, and I thought this was super, super helpful. Look at what he says. He says, does God judge like this today? Does God judge like this today? Why does God not judge sin today in the way he did with Ananias and Sapphira, besides the fact that we'd probably all be dead? What we see here is a typical, typical example of the full expression of the powers of the new age. In other words, when the church comes into being and the spirit uh, uh, is unleashed on the church, God is present in and through his people in unique ways. Okay? He says these are usually reserved for the final day of the Lord when God is going to judge us all, Christians and non-Christians alike, He says, but God does not always show his full feelings about it publicly. He did do that, however, during key revelatory periods. At the start of Israel's life in the Promised Land, he showed for all time, through the judgment that followed Achan's sin in Joshua 7, what he thinks about deception. At the start of the life of the church, he again showed, by his judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, what he thinks about deception. We may not see such judgment today, but God has told us once and for all, what he thinks of such sin. You see, God was letting us understand something about himself. That God is a God who loves us and who pursues us. We actually get to be called a friend of God because of what Christ has done. But God is not simply somebody that we carry around that we are somehow now equal with. And and when sin began to infiltrate the church at the very inception, because Ananias and Sapphira cared more about what they looked like to everybody else than what was true or what was real, God said, hey, you need to understand who I am. And it says, and great fear seized everyone who heard. Continue on, chapter five, verse 17, a whole nother story. Now, You'll be like, why is these two stories connected? And I think that there's actually a reason. Uh, first, we've got the apostles doing some amazing uh, signs and healings and wonders. And all these all bunch of people in Jerusalem are like, oh my goodness, like, this is amazing. And, and they were revered. Verse 17, it says, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Okay, So they're getting more and more jealous because the church is growing. And the people are revering uh, the apostles. And so they're starting to get jealous. It says, They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, which is the full assembly of the elders of Israel. And then they sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found nobody inside. On hearing this, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. In other words, the people of Jerusalem, these are all Jews, are so enamored with what God is doing through the church and the teaching of the apostles who were simply witnessing that Jesus had truly been risen from the grave. They go and they have already put them in jail once. God miraculously releases them, tells them to go back and keep preaching. They do that. They go and try to get them again. Now they're afraid to like grab them and bind them and like drag them with them because they're afraid that the people are going to turn on them. So it says in verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. They're speaking about Jesus. They keep saying that Jesus was crucified, buried, and risen back to life. And he's like, you are determined to let everybody know that we're guilty of this man's blood. We can't have that. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings, or we must fear God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Like, look, we were there. Like, we saw it. Like, how can we not talk about it? Like, we we're, we were witnesses. We have to keep talking about this. And who are we going to fear? You or God? When they heard this, that is the Sanhedrin, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So, that's where they're at. They want to put him to death. But there's a guy's name's Gamaliel. And Gamaliel basically stands up before they can kill the apostles. And he's like, whoa, 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 hold up, fellas. Let's have a conversation about this. We've had guys like these folks that have come before and talked about a Messiah. And you know what? Nothing happens. They just kind of go away. Okay? We pick up in verse 38. Chameleon's talking and he says, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, speaking of the Sanhedrin, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. (laughs) It's kind of interesting because it says, his speech persuaded them. Well, it just persuaded them from killing them, Okay? But they still are like, all right, we won't kill him, but we're still going to teach him a lesson. And so they have him flogged, all right? A flogging is really, a, usually it's probably a 40 minus one lashes with a whip. And this would have been intense, okay? This was not like they got a spanking with daddy's, you know, paddle, all right? The wooden spoon. This wasn't a, <laughs> some of you are like, I know about the wooden spoon. Don't, the wooden spoon's no joke. The wooden spoon's no cat and nine tails, all right? So they would have been beaten, 40 minus one. And they're then let go. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Okay, name is capitalized there, talking about Jesus. Day after day in temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is is the Messiah. So the Sanhedrin finds out about them. They're not happy. They want to set an example. So instead of killing them, they simply beat them, publicly beating them. So this is intended to stop behavior. It's intended to set an example to others. It's intended to humiliate and shame those who are beating, uh, those who are being beaten, but it actually does the opposite. It was meant to instill fear. <laughs> Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says these words, and I can't help but think that the apostles were reminded of these very words that Jesus spoke to them while this is taking place. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Jesus telling the apostles, don't worry about somebody who can simply kill the body. Worry about the one who can kill the body and the soul. Like in other words, who are you going to fear more? Like in our day and age, here in America, I actually think that if you're going to believe what scripture says, and try to obey it and live by it, bear witness to it, uh, it's going to become harder and harder. Okay? Now, we are not North Korea. Okay? The persecution we experience is nothing like our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East, who are literally being killed and tortured for their faith. It's not even like our brothers and sisters in China. Okay? There are places all over the world, but it doesn't mean that persecution isn't beginning to happen. It's of a different nature. I'm not worried about somebody throwing me in jail or somebody cutting off my hands or my head or doing worse things to my kids or other family. Like, but it doesn't mean that it, it's not real. So, so uh, I'm going to show you a video of Bernie Sanders in just a second. But I need to make a couple of... ...of faith yeah, well, hang that on, includes... Hang on. Just a second. Okay, I need to give you a little background on what's happening here because uh, this actually just happened this past week. And and, and when I first saw it, I I was really kind of surprised, although I actually think it speaks perfectly of kind of uh, what's happening uh, in in our society. Okay? Uh, This is a guy, his name is uh, Russell Vogt. Um, He was put up uh, by the Trump administration for some arcane position, budget, something, something or other, Uh, but he has to have a, a hearing. And uh, so he's being questioned. So there's, there's all kinds of different uh, things that are in play here. Uh, I'm mostly interested in the very last statement that, that Bernie actually says to him. Because quite honestly, I, I, a lot of my millennial friends uh, think Bernie's pretty stinking cool. Okay? Now, there's actually some things uh, about Bernie that I actually really groove with. There's a lot of things about Bernie that I don't groove with. Uh, and I should say this. Uh, I did not vote for Bernie. I did not vote for Hillary. I did not vote for Trump but I did vote, okay? This is not a political statement, but I do think that Bernie is actually one of the cool makers, quote-unquote, in America. And he represents a lot of the cool makers. This is actually an interaction that took place because of a blog post that Mr. Vote wrote a couple years ago, about a year and a half ago, uh, basically standing up for the Christian school, that the Christian college that he had attended. And in this blog post he said that uh, he quoted Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, when Paul said that uh, if you don't know Jesus you already stand condemned. So that's kind of the background. Uh, Let's listen and then I want to talk just real briefly about the last sentence that Bernie says.
0: And that is in the piece that I referred to that you wrote for a publication called Resurgent. You wrote muslim quote muslims do not simply have a deficient theology they do not know god because they have rejected jesus christ his son and they stand condemned end of quote do you believe do you believe that that statement is islamophobic
2: absolutely not senator i'm a christian and i believe in a christian set of principles based on my faith uh, that post, as I stated in the questionnaire to this committee, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation and... Again, I apologize.
0: I do Forgive me. I, I, we just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe that people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view?
2: Again, Senator, I'm a Christian and I wrote that piece what does According that say? The statement of faith we I understand that. I don't know how
0: many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know. Probably a couple of million. Are you suggesting that all of those people stand condemned? What about Jews? They stand condemned too.
2: Senator, I'm a Christian.
0: I... I understand you are a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, Do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned?
2: Thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect, regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that that, as a Christian, that's how I should treat all
0: individuals. Do you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God because they've rejected Jesus Christ, the son, and they stand condemned. Do you think that's respectful of other religions? Senator,
2: I wrote a post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly with regard to the
0: centrality of Jesus Christ in salvation. I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee um, is really not someone with what this country is supposed to be about. I will vote no Senator Gardner.
1: Did you hear the last line? Okay. Now again, this isn't like we hate Bernie or we love Bernie or we hate Trump or we love Trump. It's not my point at all, all right? But the last line that Senator Sanders says, this nominee is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. Okay? Now he was talking about the fact that uh, Christians believe that Jesus makes exclusive truth claims. That Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man gets to the Father, to God, except through me, Jesus says, okay? Uh, Muslims believe the same thing. Jews actually believe uh, the same thing, that, that, they, that their religions hold exclusive truth, uh, um, that you, you don't get there through Jesus. All right. So Sanders says he is not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. I actually think Bernie's right. <laughs> I think Bernie's right. I, I think that that's probably become the prevailing truth in America. A- and if you think the Bible says that Jesus is the exclusive way to know God and the exclusive way to enjoy his presence forever, forever, your exclusivity might keep you excluded. Again, getting a public beat down by Bernie Sanders is not like, you know, getting killed or having your arm chopped off for being a Christian, alright? It doesn't even come close to matching up, but the persecution of whether or not we're going to be cool, Right? whether or not those that kind of get to decide who's in and who's out in in America, whether or not we're out of step with the mainstream, whether or not we're being seen as intolerant or unloving, which is probably one of the worst things you can be called today, right? Intolerant. Those things play a role in who we are as Christians and what we're going to fear. It's exactly what's going on here in the text in Acts. Great fear seized when God showed that he is holy and he will not tolerate sin. There was great fear that was trying to be exercised on the apostles. And the question that the text is trying to ask us is, who will we fear? Who will we fear? Following Christ could mean that your friendships are actually at risk or that opportunities for social engagements could be at risk, that There could be financial risks. It's possible in the not-too-distant future that if you believe what Scripture says and try to follow it faithfully and obey it, you could lose a job. It's possible. Now, thankfully right now, there's rules, laws on the books that say you can't be fired for something like that, but let's be honest. Stuff happens. There could be loss of opportunities for advancement. You could risk loss of power or influence. Quite honestly, uh, we are. But what do you fear more? I told you this is a tough one. This is, this is just like, oh man, like couldn't we tell us something else? The reason that it's tough is because then it says, well, how do we fear God? When I was growing up, people used to tell me, like, uh, fearing God, like, that just means respect. Okay, like, you just need to respect God. And that's absolutely true. There is an, an element of respecting God that comes in fearing God. Uh, there's also an element of awe, like we're just like, oh my, like he's just like, he's so big, so vast, so amazing, so unbelievable, like I'm just in awe. But there's also a time where people are like literally afraid, because they recognize God's here, and I'm here. And there's no such thing as this. And the reason that I struggle with this, to be honest, is because I'm afraid, like, but God, what? I'm afraid that there are times that I don't fear God the way I'm supposed to. And and the Bible's very clear that teachers are going to be judged more harshly. And, 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 And I'm afraid because, quite honestly, I think I could do exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. There are times that I want you to think a certain way about me that might not really be true because I care about what you think. Sometimes even more than what God thinks. But if all we are is so afraid of God that we want nothing to do with him, I don't think that that's very helpful either. And so I've been racking my brain like, God, how do I talk about fear? Like, how do I talk about this? How do I help us engage and recognize that you're here and we're here and, and that that needs to stay there? But, but God, how do I help people know that, like, this isn't so far away because you come down? And, and, and I'll tell you, this, this is going to sound kind of funny, but the best thing that I can do to, to illustrate this is actually a, a scene from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Some of you are like, yes, Lord of the Rings. Okay, It's a scene with uh, um, Bilbo. I always get their names mixed up. Bilbo and Gandalf. Uh, Bilbo is supposed to be leaving the Shire, and he's had this ring for a long time, and he's supposed to be giving up the ring, and they had a party for him to leave, and he's struggling with giving up the ring a little bit, and this is that clip. then this is not going to be very helpful. <laughs> Turn the lights back on. <laughs> now you're all going to wonder. So I'll tell you what happens in the clip. He opens up the door and walks in, and you don't see anybody because he's got the ring on, and which makes him invisible. And then he pops the ring off, and boom, he's there. And Gandalf is in there, okay? And he says, uh, Gandalf says, hey, I'm so glad that you're going to leave. Um, you know, it's going to be exciting for you. It's a new chapter, and... Uh, he says, you know, where's the ring? And he had just slipped it into his coat pocket. He's like, oh, it's over there on, the, on a letter to Frodo on the shelf. And he's like, well, actually, it's still in your pocket. He's like, oh, yeah. And he pulls it out, and he's like, maybe I don't need to get rid of it. Maybe I should keep it. And he starts looking at it, and it's the first time he calls it his precious. And uh, Gandalf says, um, Bilbo, you know you need to give up the ring, basically. And he's like, ah, but I don't know that I want to give up the ring. And he's like, you need to give up the ring. This is not, this is, you can't take it with you. And, and he's like, you're trying to steal it from me. And he turns around and he starts getting angry with Gandalf. And when he turns around and says, you're trying to take it from me. Gandalf, all of a sudden, the room starts to go black. And Gandalf seems to get bigger and his arms are, and he says, Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> okay, something like that. And like the whole space, like the, the, the it's almost like his mere presence begins to expand and the house even begins to hear creaking noises and things and Bilbo all of a sudden is like oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry and, and, and then all of a sudden it like <sighs> comes back down to normal Gandalf and he comes and he embraces his friend Bilbo and he takes the ring from him and he says it's okay I love you this is going to be awesome It's that moment when Gandalf does the Bilbo Baggins that we understand the way that we're supposed to fear. And literally, Bilbo fears. But it is not a fear that keeps him away. It is actually a fear that, interestingly enough, draws him towards. It's a recognition that Gandalf is here and Bilbo is here. And God wants us to have that same understanding with him. At the end of the day, friends, we all have to ask ourselves, who are we going to fear more? You see, and when we fear God, we always find life. You see, just like Gandalf was making Bilbo afraid, it was for his good, not for his harm. It was not to make Bilbo an idiot or a fool or uncool or unpowerful or it was so that Bilbo could actually experience life and life to the full that's what Jesus does for us the reason that Jesus is to be feared is because our sin destroys us and because God loves us so much God says I cannot allow you to continue on in this because it's going to destroy you and I'll deal with it and you have to deal with it that's what God wants for us